I have an editor. He edits whatever um, we Do want out, this? so everything's safe. <laughs> <laughs> I think he should make sure that's <laughs> in it. I'm having a little red wine. Can he edit this? <laughs> oh, gosh. See, that's the way to do that it. That makes me nauseous just looking at it right now. Did you have quite a weekend? Ooh. I, yeah, I was just telling Xander I went to a music festival, so I'm I'm a little beat. <laughs> that's masochist when one, one, one feels like, what did I just do to myself? It really is. Welcome to Buy Bitches Podcast. Um, today, we, um, we're doing something special. In fact, I'm going to call <laughs> this today, I'm calling it the bitchin' biz because we are actually in a business that's pretty bitchin', but we're kind of bitchin' about it, and if I'm using the word a couple different ways. Mm-hmm. So today, look, our podcast is about movies, TV, and people we love, and we're going to have to stick with kind of the latter, which is people we love, because... We have just entered the SAG strike and our podcast being that it's a rewatch podcast and we talk about all these iconic films and TV. I think pretty much everything I've done and most of our our guests have done are basically produced from struck companies, the AMPTP. And SAG has informed us that they would not like us to discuss those kinds of shows and productions um, that would, I guess, directly or indirectly support those companies. However, so you'll have to imagine uh, <laughs> a, some sort of a spy genre in one form or another. It's going to be a network game. Or an- right, right. It's going to be a game. You're going to have to figure out what we're mm-hmm. talking right. about. Use your detective skills and deduce. Google. Yeah. Get, pull up IMDb. <laughs> pull up IMDb. Um, but before I go f- any further and introduce our guest, um, I do want to say that SAG fully, 100% supports us promoting ourselves as artists. And um, we can talk talk about our careers and everything. We're just not supposed to mention the titles. Therefore, our guest that we're so excited for is somebody who's been at the top of my list from the very beginning, not only because he's he is insanely talented, an insanely talented actor and artist, but he also is a fascinating storyteller, wordsmith, veteran thespian, and friend. And as of today, Xander Berkeley has an astonishing 255 actor credits. Did you know that, Xander? They've like <laughs> I, I, I check in every once in a while. Go. <laughs> he began his uh, on-screen career in 1981 in a movie with Faye Dunaway. And then, because originally my whole introduction, of course, names the titles of these things, but um, he went on to roles in movies about a punk rocker. And there was a movie with with Tom Cruise and a movie with uh, Tom Hanks and Harrison Ford. And that's just to name a few. And of course, he has a huge resume of television as well. So this is when you have to go to IMDb. Everyone, please welcome Xander Berkeley. Hi, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the last time CG you saw Xander probably was at her wedding. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, because we moved not long after that. Right. And I did, too. Two years later to Chicago. So you look exactly the same. <laughs> Everyone says. Really? The night yeah. before my 21st birthday, my mom goes, oh, you don't like a day over 16. <laughs> like, that's what every 21 year old wants to hear. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, soon enough you will. Well, <laughs> so Xander, let's start off with just like, how are you? How you doing? How's the family? How's the East Coast? You li- now live in Maine full time, correct? We do, and um, we're sort of building a little uh, a little environment uh, to lure friends like yourselves into uh, the bliss of nature to to make independent movies. We're, we're trying to uh, get competitive tax incentives brought to the state of Maine and things are looking very good on that front. Yeah. And, um, and we're, we're developing property that would be cinematic and a fun place for everybody to come and stay. We're, we're looking forward to collaborating with the writers and actors and friends and and I, th- I think it's worth in this little interview to discuss, you know, the, the elephant in the room is the strike. And and we can talk about it. I think a lot of people, my sense is a lot of people are curious to right. know what it's all about. And, you know, I've even had people ask, how do we support you guys? Uh, mm-hmm. Cancel your streaming platforms. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um because, you know, obviously we rely on that uh, for what we do to get the exposure, but there's been this increasing corporate greed uh, that's that's exacerbated in every industry, exacerbated by the stockholders wanting their bottom line mm-hmm. to keep improving and so that their stock portfolio keeps becoming more valuable. And I, I think we all understand and appreciate that. But um, there's a point at which it seems as though compassion and concern for the individuals upon whose backs one is making those profits mm-hmm. um, get sort of uh, know, driven under the tires. And, and I think that those of us who have been fortunate enough to work uh, and people are, as a result, curious to hear what we have to say, um, need to speak on behalf of everybody in the union because you know there's some people that make an extraordinary amount of money that are in that are actors that are stars huge stars and then there's those who don't make enough to uh, to get medical coverage and the union spans the whole thing mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people associate <clears throat> actors wealth with those stars that they may read numbers about and um, and then just think ah, actors have it easy. But I think it's it's good to talk about some of the nitty gritty things that have changed just in the time that we've been in the business because it's been dramatic. I uh, I spent some time this weekend listening to some podcasts. There's a Deadline podcast, and they've been talking about the Writers Guild strike, and then they dis- discussed um, the actor strikes that started on this is this is Sunday, um, started on the 14th, and then they they, they interviewed some experts from Wall Street. Um, so. I, I'm certainly not an expert. Um, I can only speak from my own experience. And, you know, I came away from it. I literally had tears listening to the stories and what's really the the dynamics of what's going on between the corporate world. And the, um, one gentleman actually said something that, that really resonated with me. He said, it's like we're us artists are trying to save this industry from the people who own it. And the people who own it now, and it's happened, you know, Corporations came in many, many years ago, Sony and um, and such and, and 
Universal and um, NBC and all that. Um, Sony used G- to say MGM. Yeah. Remember that? Remember, I remember when they took down the MGM and put up Sony and it was like, right. ah, no. So but Time yeah. Warner, you know, those, those companies came in years and years ago. And, you know, it, when you think of the 70s, when Robert Evans was the head of Paramount Studios, that was kind of the last time it really was there. Although it was still kind of, it still was owned by an, uh, a, a bigger Western. company, Gulf West Western, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's, there's, it's always been a business, but there yeah. was still some, somewhat a bit more autonomy in the, in artists just, you know, creating their things because we're, we're, we're so passionate about what, what we do. We're, we just want to get it made and put it out there. And, and we still think of it as art. And I think with the advent of, these tech companies and the Amazons and the Netflix and everything that certainly got accelerated during COVID that now we're in a deep restructuring of the industry. And we're trying to, from my experience, always catch up to the technology. The technology always surpasses our contracts. And you think back to the time when uh, we just were plugging along with three networks and, and you went to the movies and you watched a few television shows and, then all of a sudden it became that you were going to rent movies and DVDs and we had to fight for residuals for that kind of thing as well. So, but the, but the companies always have a head start because they don't have to give you anything that hasn't set a precedent. You, you know, a, a wild one, you, you just went to straight to DVDs, but there was actually a huge uh, sort of tectonic shift when we went from VHS videotape mm-hmm to DVDs. And the rumor has it that there was a gentleman that was negotiating, the lawyer that was representing SAG at that time, that that deal went through, determined that a different payment should be made for this type of plastic versus that type of plastic. That VHS, okay, you got X amount for every sale. You know, there's a piece of pie, there's X number of actors in a thing, and this is how much the actors get percentage-wise in general, and the actors get, you know, for their time in, in a big film. Um, depending on the number of people that were in it, they get some percentage of, of that. Mm-hmm. When it's when the videotape is sold, and it may be just pennies or dollars or whatever, but every sale of videotape and every rental of videotape would be calculated in some way, and we would make good residuals for movies that did really well. And in general residuals, I think everybody knows are the things that actors rely upon to create some kind of economic stability in a life that is entirely dependent upon the merciless vicissitudes of fate where you have no way of predicting what is gonna happen next. And so it, it created a little bit of flow. If you'd been working, you were gonna get paid for the shows that reran on television and for the movies that did well in the theaters and that rented well at the video stores. But they, the guy that represented SAG decided that we shouldn't get as much for the DVD. And in fact, it was a huge reduction mm-hmm. when it went from VHS to DVD. And this has, been, this has been my understanding about people that have really worked involved with this negotiation at the time, that it was discovered that the lawyer that represented SAG was later to become one of the part owners of Netflix. And Netflix was the one that sent out the little red envelopes with the DVDs in it. Mm-hmm. And they they shut down all the video stores across the country, essentially, yeah. in the wake of that transition. 
Now, I think I think you told me that, and and you know, there's so much going on behind the scenes that feels so big and so complicated, and you know, this whole idea of streaming and and like I said, the, I think COVID really accelerated it because we were at at home, and all of a sudden we had a demand for new content, and and mm-hmm. that that model of Netflix, you had all of these other you know and all those other companies, or maybe I should, shouldn't even be saying that. I'm sorry. Let's bleep that one, Parker, my editor, <laughs> but all these AMPTP companies that they're, they all of a sudden they're chasing that model. And we produce so much content that there seems to be, there was one expert on this podcast that was saying that if we just produce less content, there would be some money left over for, you know, for the writers and the actors and such. Yeah. It's over it's overwhelming how much content is being produced these days. Like every all of these streaming platforms like Netflix and Prime are now making their own shows instead of just putting on reruns mm-hmm. and everything and it's it's overwhelming the amount of just new things there are coming out. Right. And and overwhelming to the viewers to have to keep oh that shows on this platform or that platform so i guess i have to order that now too and so they keep paying more and right. more and more money we all do we because we want to stay current even if we're not like avid tv watchers we want to be able to watch a show that we might want to be involved in or see what somebody's done before and in order to stay current in general you almost have to stream everything so you're spending a fortune on this stuff as as actors, as well as the fan base and, and uh, you know, the audience in general. And then recently, Netflix has started, I don't know if I can say Netflix, has started cracking down and is saying you can't have multiple households. I've had people like friends who don't live in the state anymore where their parents are and they've been kicked off their Netflix account because Netflix has said, you're not in the same household as this person mm-hmm. You can't watch anymore. You're not allowed to be in different places anymore. I kind of get that one just because so many people could basically cheat the system right. and get away. You gotta you gotta expect to pay something for everything in, right. in life. And and I, I don't I don't know that it's um, you know, those kids gotta stop freeloading on their parents. I'm not saying you know your generation <laughs> hey, is Watch no, you kidding. talking to no, my mom pays my phone bill. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, I, you're good with insurance for three more. I'm years. staying on health insurance until right. I get kicked you're off. Fuck yourself up now is the time. I don't know if I'm going to have health insurance next year. You have to make a certain amount, and that's the other thing. Our residual. It's really, really complicated because yeah. because there's well, and to the Netflix thing. Um, I was listening to these Wall Street ex- experts and they were saying that Netflix is, is it's what do they call it? Predatory pricing. They literally are underpriced for the product that they're putting out there. And mm. and and so all these other streaming platforms are trying to keep up. And it's the same thing as like Amazon itself puts on, you know, they they price products at very, very low for competitiveness. Well, it's it's tricky because now they don't have the old paradigms they used to have in terms of tracking TV ratings and or syndication those old paradigms are now completely lost and in that there there was a certain element of uncertainty on the the network studios producers to um 
you know, figure out how much they're spending and how much they're getting back. And then, you know, some smaller independent film producers, you know, I, I could feel their pain because I, first of all, have always loved going back and forth between doing things that are big pop culture events and things that are obscure art independent film events. And so I've, I've been a, a big fan of those people that were willing to risk their hard-earned dollars to make an independent film that didn't have some huge corporate studio network support in order to finance it and have it distributed. It was a big gamble, and it's a gamble for art on the part of producers as well as as actors, writers, and directors to get a hold of a script that's that's creative enough to inspire you to do it, despite the fact that you're not going to make the money you would on something else. And the producers are in that boat too, and they've got to make the, we want them to be able to make their money back. And and the some of the structures, the residual structures were, from my understanding, unfairly inclined towards actors quite a while ago now, because we've lost in several negotiations any strength that we had. But before, independent film producers were apparently having to pay residuals out before they got their money back. Mm-hmm. If that's something viewed. And so that's tricky because you want to you want to feel like, well, make your money back. And then we all agreed to do this for X amount of money. But now that you've made your money back, all the money now has to be shared in terms of residuals and all the rest of it. It's complicated. I don't know if this is interesting to people. Well, I don't, it's a really complicated thing because I think people don't understand the, the residual. So back in the days of seven, in the seventies and eighties and such, when there was ne- a network television show, they would do 13 episodes. Let's say it was one. Okay. I'm not supposed to mention it. Sorry. <laughs> or the 20, 22. Episodes, so, well, they would right? do 13 and then repeat them over the summertime and you got paid exactly the same amount that first time it's repeated in primetime television, you got paid exactly the same that you made the first time and we get paid per episode. So you ended up getting, you know, more than 22 episodes, but then the model turned to 22 episodes and, or sometimes 24 or 27. And then the first time it airs in primetime repeat, did they, did they cut it to half? Is that what it was? Oh, definitely half, if not less than okay. half. So then if it ever repeated throughout the summer or such, um, that's when you would make really good residuals. But then mm-hmm. they stopped doing that because they would because we were doing so many episodes, they stopped repeating during the summer at some point. A goal for a television show is it used to be 100 episodes on a network. And then once it moved into true syndication, that's where you really made your money. The problem with something like a Netflix or an Amazon is they're on, they're produced by those shows and they're in, they're on those platforms in perpetuity. They're never going to move. So that would be the, if it moved or got licensed to somebody else, that's where you would make a residual. But Netflix has been doing this for a long time, not really paying, they're paying their own version of, of residuals. And so they're trying to come up with, from what I understand, a success-based residual, which would mean based on the success of a show on Netflix and how many people are watching, who's watching and all that, this has been one of the things that they are slamming the door on because it would force them to open their books and be transparent. And yeah. now they don't ever want to do that because they don't want to show anybody how much they're making. But if Netflix is, Netflix is going to start having um, advertisers, you've got to be able to show advertisers what 
the numbers are. So it's highly, highly complicated. And I think ultimately, if we don't fight for what, like, for instance, the last time we were on strike together, what, 60 years ago, it was to get health and pension and, and yeah, health and pension and residuals because we didn't have that. And it's a scary thought to think that ultimately their bottom line is what you said, the valuation on Wall Street and their profits. And they want to do, they want to continue this business and do it for as little money as possible. And I don't know, CG, your generation, it'll be interesting. We're fighting for your generation, to be quite honest. Yeah, because we we were just able to sort of, I think in the 60s, up until the 60s, there were a lot of people that were taken advantage of, just like we all know people in the music industry were. Mm -hmm. But then somewhere in the 70s, some litigation took place and changes were made so that people could get a fair share of what they're playing it again and they're getting all the same advertising money to play it again, Mm -hmm. then they've got to pay it again for those who were involved in making it. Right. And on one scale or another, and they sort of have drifted away from that as it's gotten harder and harder to track. They've taken advantage of the obscuring mm-hmm. uh, factors and just decided to sort of put the kibosh on more and more shows. Suddenly it's like, oh, in the fine print, we're basically not going to be paying anything in the way of the first 12 reruns of the show, nothing. And then right. maybe down the line after it's gone down to next to nothing. And I've, I've gotten a couple of checks for zero in the past month. Or and minus like, oh, one. Are they you going to start taking money away now? I mean, Well, and the, the other thing is that if, when you think about that model, if we were going to show that you and I worked on in Toronto, that sometimes we were doing 24 episodes or, um, but then now a days, you think about writers and actors, they're doing sometimes eight episodes or 10 episodes. Mm-hmm. So we all get paid per episode. And they'll be committed. They can't do anything else. They're not being set free. Yeah. yeah. And you can't, and it's exclusive. So when you think about writers who are a, a lot more writers, a higher percentage of writers are getting just barely scale. It used to be like 20, now it's 50%. And also the cost of production has doubled in the past 15 years, but the cost, but the pay, payment scale hasn't doubled. So you're asking writers to work the same amount of time, maybe 10 months on a show for only 10 episodes when they were getting 22 before. That needs to change. And, I th- and, yeah. and actors as well. So those are the big things that are happening, but also the AI is, it's been here and it's here and it's, and it's, I think, you know, you kind of think of it as being so in the future, but it's here. It's like but, one of my biggest fears. What? Artificial intelligence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it should be. I'm I worked, so I worked on a movie over 33, I guess, years ago now, almost 33, that uh, foretold the tale of, of the danger of AI. <laughs> There's been so many films and TV Coming that have from warned the us. To tear us apart. Yeah, there have been so many. We haven't and, listened to the warnings. Right, right. And now, even, how- I even remember commercials. Like, I, I, I did a film with, uh, and I, I, nobody will be able to track down probably on the basis of this information the name <laughs> of the thing. But it was uh, a script, a, a, a friend, became a friend at this point, um, posted online and was doing a GoFundMe, like Kickstarter uh, funding thing, based on, here, read the script. You want to see this get made? Help it get made, and and the Bogart Foundation uh, saw it, read it. It was a it was a, a, a contemporary noir, and they went, yeah, this is exactly what we wanted 
do let's do this and um they had accrued something even though the budget was very modest and they'd already started raising some money on kickstarter they were only asking for a small amount they go no take the whole amount we can afford that but make a better movie include the part that other people have already given you some money towards and we also have favors that we can throw at this in terms of where we can shoot because Mm -hmm. a lot of people during this one little window of time you might remember i don't know if cg's old enough but um they were using Bogart's likeness and Marilyn Monroe's likeness on TV commercials. Mm-hmm. And they'd figure out a way to sort of animate them and take their vocal, whatever it was. They were, it wasn't convincing. It was clearly a commercial ripping their personas off, mm-hmm. but it got shut down pretty quickly. And it was just a little, little window of time when they were trying that out. And and back then, because I think it was like the 90s, mm. they thought, that's creepy. They're going to be able to do that. To any. And every time I ever got scanned for a show, yeah. you've been scanned, I'm sure. I haven't. I haven't. CG, have you been scanned? No, I was just about to say, I was watching a television show and it's about, it's a cartoon about an actor and he's doing this big movie, but he's a liability because he drinks, does drugs. He's just like all over the place. And they scan his head and he ends up going off the rails and he finds out that the movie that was made, he's not actually in a single scene of it. Mm-hmm. It's a scan of him. Yeah. I'm like, that is nuts. So that actually that is, happened? And, um, or is I don't that know. The, the, show the television is show is apparently based on a real actor's life. So I think it did happen. So, but it's like loosely based on his life. So our lead negotiator. I'll tell you the name of it later. (laughs) Our lead lead negotiator on SAG. I was listening to an interview with him yesterday, talking about the fact that we're not trying to stop AI, or at least SAG in general. And I say we that they're really they they want to go. They want to embrace it and be and be progressive and futuristic and all that. What they uh, but what I guess they had proposed was for instance using um a background player comes in they're going to scan them and then they get that they get that identity for a hundred bucks for the day they get it forever and in perpetuity in perpetuity yeah, that's just insane and, and that's and for for background actors that's and for so background actors and it's already you're wiping happened out a lot of people's income the minute you do that you're wiping out right and and i'm sorry we have to do enough imagining as it is when you're <laughs> an actor to have to imagine, you know, a scene that would just like in a restaurant where different people are sitting at different tables eating and stuff. It it helps to have background, especially good background that really knows how to just be real and simple and quiet in the moment and, and pantomime. And it was fascinating just to fill in, in a, in a, in a loop group to, you do maybe six different passes on a crowd scene. There's five or six of you, and you're calling, I got that guy. I got that. Okay. Okay. And then you follow these people in the background and you ad lib, but you have to give ND improvisation, nondescript language. Like there were hot words that were on a list that you couldn't ever improvise. Never say the word mother, never say the word blood. It'll pop out. 
I've never heard of that. Being a young actor, like um, being open to all kinds of CG's taking, I think I told you um, classes at Second City, she's she's doing improv, but being open to things like that, those kinds of experience, loop groups can be highly fun and and satisfying and just being behind, you're in post at and, that point. And they forever get you over the anxiety and trepidation about having to do ADR. Um, having to loop your performance because a plane went overhead or a train went through or the sound got muffled because of your clothing or whatever. We have to do a lot of replacement dialogue. And I've always looked forward to it ever since I did a loop group because I I got, wow, oh, you can just keep making it better every time you. Yeah. Because I never like to look at the monitor. I don't like to get outside of it. When I'm in it, I like to stay in it. It's just my joy. It's not necessarily good advice for anyone else but and then i really enjoy the i don't like to see a, a rough cut i like to see it when they've done the color correcting and they've done put the score in and it gets like christmas you open, open it all at once and and being on the outside in these little glimpses through adr the only times i go oh well now that i'm outside of it i actually see that this would work better than what I did on the day. You know, more often than not, the directors would just do as much as you can, just match, because I I love what you did here. And I just want to see that again. And I go, yep, I think I might have a better idea. <laughs> and, and, and it's really fun being outside of it in that phase and looking at how a different vocal quality, different inflection, a different emotion can suddenly connect. And you just learn how to get really good at making the lip sync work. Yeah, that's that's a skill. It definitely I've I I'm always very happy. I don't know. I I've been on shows where my goal is to make sure I never have to do the ADR. That's kind of been my thing. And so I've, I've, gone, with, I've gone with you to ADR many when I was little. I would come with you and I'd sit in the sound you booth can't avoid it. while yeah. you're doing ADR. I have so many memories of do that. Do you? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know what you remember or what you don't because you know we were all in Toronto together, and and that's a good segue. We doing a show that we won't name. <laughs> that, but was my <laughs> what is one of my was you know I remember. Do you remember the first time I I just called you and said we're going to my friend's restaurant, Harbor Sixty? CG, you've been to Harbor Sixty? Yep, in Toronto. Pop rocks. Yeah, yeah, pop yes. rocks. And, <laughs> and we yeah. took we took everyone to that restaurant, and it was highly expensive. <laughs> And we had, um, oh my gosh, it was so much fun. I mean, there's something about location that you and I have had multiple conversations about because we, you're literally just surviving. And I was flying back and forth and you brought your whole family. Um, and also- Rowan- I didn't abandon my child. Yeah. Oh, I'm just kidding. I know you guys are- Whoa. Joe, no. Oh, You're going to strike a nerve I there, Xander. just keep this interesting for the audience. We might as well get to the nitty gritty, considering we can't talk about the TV. No, but this is the, <laughs> the, the emotional trauma that this is what actors go through, because there have been plenty of times I've had to do shows away, and it is literally like driving a knife in your heart. Like, I did a show in Shreveport, and I didn't get to bring my family, because they weren't going to relocate. To that shithole. I'm kidding. Shreveport. <laughs> I'm kidding. You're a great town. Um, I don't even but, know where that is. But Toronto, it was just good fortune that Sarah was so pregnant and she already had the, this uh, a sequel or two to do that was set up. So she didn't have to look for work 
Right. It was going to be it was one of those big vampire gonna, things. Something along that line. <laughs> um, we can say spy genre, vampire yeah. genre. We can right. give people hints. Um, vampire, but, werewolf. Um, yeah. yeah. Argument. The, the, oh, the, yeah. The werewolf Sarah thing Clark. for me came right Your after wife. the spy thing. <laughs> but, but the, you know, I remember saying to her, because I didn't, I wasn't going to take because we were, she was having a baby Bleep. and <laughs> we'll bleep it. No, I wasn't going to take that. Doesn't no, no. say that I, I did. No, that, that I'm not even talking about that. I don't know. I brought that up anyway. The show I was talking about, which I don't name, I won't name, um, is the one that I I didn't know if I was going to do or not. And, it was hard to get uh, you on. I remember. Yeah, and then they made a, 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 suddenly a fair offer and a straight offer, and I said, "Okay, Sarah." Toronto. And she was like, That's why good. wouldn't we? I was like, but you're going to move there and stay there? Because we, we hadn't been doing shows. Once we had our first child, we weren't going to do a show that wouldn't break up the family. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do because that's also in the midst of, they used to shoot 80% of all television and movies in Los Angeles. And around 2008, it had shifted to about 20% shot in Los Angeles and about 80% mm-hmm. elsewhere. It's probably less now. Because of tax incentive, now even less. Mm-hmm. That was 2008. And so it was a gradual and if not sudden migration away from Los Angeles because the big, uh, you know, 300 pound gorilla in the economy of California is not show business. It turns out it's, Silicon Valley, and it didn't behoove them to provide tax incentives. It's what one time traveling with a with the big network producer saying, explaining to me why why don't we have tax incentives for film in LA, in California? Right. We usually ask people what your favorite film is right now, and so we can't do that. But I'm just asking, like, what it what do you think uh, favorite films and TV? Uh, like, what what's that meaning for you? You know, it's funny because I go, I go back to um, a lot of classics. I, I am a huge film noir fan. Like I will watch those movies repeatedly because it's just still there's some magic they captured in a bottle at that at that point. It's almost like for me, like the impressionists in in, in France in the 1920s. What the hell happened that they were all just sort of just getting it together? And to me, I feel that way about the early black and white gothic horror films. And I feel that way about the the 40s film noir films and uh, about 60s foreign films. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, Bergman and Fellini and Truffaut. And, yeah, you know, there was just pure genius that was happening. And I felt like they were cross-pollinating this in certain mastery that you know i don't think any any level of you know digital mastery can ever can ever replace and maybe that's putting another bow on the conversation about where ai and and different things enter in that to me um the part of what made that that movie that you referenced arnold schwarzenegger won one of his films um, remain futuristic and feel so powerful at the beginning of digital wizardry 
um, mm-hmm. was because so much of it was done with practical uh, application. Like I actually had to practice sword swallowing for two weeks before doing that scene. They did have a, a mold at the back of my head and puppeteers that were down below frame pulling pulleys that would make this retract and that come out to make it look as though there, there was just so much involved. It gives wow. me the practical, <laughs> Yeah, it was just it was it, it was ingenious and and uh, they were taking all of technology, but they were just using also all of the magic of practical uh, stagecraft and putting them together. And, and I feel like, you know, we'll keep moving forward and there'll still be, you know, waves of genius and maybe they'll make the most brilliant films with pure AI down the line. Who knows? But there's something about humanity and storytelling and truth. And just like I was saying, real connection, real listening between actors in the moment that no robots and no uh, digital mastery can ever. I I feel it when I'm watching a movie and I I can see that that's not those aren't real extras, that that's just a digital crowd. Mm -hmm. And I feel cheated on some level. And I think the real magic would be at this point to to get away from. I, I'd like to see more paintings and backdrops and some of the stuff that they did out of pure invention back then because they weren't being lazy. They didn't just click in a few things. Like in- to, Yeah, <laughs> that's right. There was a wizardy movie that did that once. Um, a, a, a lot of that director Hitchcock he uses uh, unbelievable. If you look at them repeatedly, yeah. that answers. He's another person I'll go to right. again. And you see, wow, that was all a backdrop. And they created from daylight. They would paint. In- yeah, paint. And then like a painting yeah. this big on glass and then, like, would become. And pinholes that mm-hmm. bring, and they show lights coming through as it gets darker. So you think that, but if you look closely, Pretty. that's also part of the system. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and, and here in Maine, you know, we got a farm. We want to get some of my painter friends. We want to do some expressionistic films that work with backdrop paintings, and, as well as maybe four screen LED projection, but I, I like the combination. And I, 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 to this day, I like to see the newest things that are being made, but I do always like to go back to, it's like reading classic literature. We are going into the future and I think we're embracing it. So I think it, you know, we have, we have a bit of a fight, but one last question before we go, if you could talk to your young self, what would you tell him? Oh, just go for it. You know, which I did do, Uh, but you know, don't be afraid to carve your own path out because, you know, at the end of the day, there's this uncertainty and there's this feeling that if you don't go for it, you never have the opportunities. And one of the things that I've, I've found is that I feel really fortunate. I feel really grateful and, and grateful to to the friends that I've made and, and feel like We'll always be friends, and and somebody that I'm so excited to to lure out to to get uh, to get off the grid a little bit and think outside the box and find new ways of telling stories. And 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 I guess the thing I'm still telling my younger self who's going to be a director when he grows up is hang in there and and don't lose sight of your big dreams because it's easy. The business will absorb you whatever level you allow it to. So that's why I think I just say keep at it. Take action. Never stop taking action. 
right? <laughs> yeah, except in strikes when we have to not act. No, <laughs> Well, Xander, thank you so much for being here. I mean, I, I, I went back and forth about postponing, but I just, I think you were the one person that we could literally have a conversation without, without breaking the rules and still, but celebrate the artistry and ourselves yeah. and talk about this. And I think we pulled it off. I mean, CG was here to catch us the minute we strayed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was the, the title police. Yeah. This Don't was a see. very informative conversation too. I mean, for anyone who's interested in getting into acting, I think you guys gave a lot of super, super helpful college that yeah. we probably wouldn't have discussed if this strike wasn't yeah. happening. I think it's a wonderful experiment. So um, listeners, you know, we'll, I'll let you know what's going on in the future. Um, if we have to go on pause, I'm not sure yet. Or if I can continue down this road with some other people that worked on that Toronto yeah. show I had lined up. But, um, you know, it's it's, cool. it's nice to be able to reminisce. And, and we will be coming to Maine, I think. We need to. Xander keeps inviting mean. us. Yeah. And, and tell the mister that the, the river is twice its normal size. Oh, Adam. <laughs> and, and there is white, white water. To be rafted at and just all you have to do is go to Vermont. You're invited to come. Thanks. He's what he's right. <laughs> we have a pretty good canoe. A canoe. We're going a canoe. Give Rowan and Owen our best and give a hug to Sarah. And uh, we hope to see you in person again soon. And thank you for listening, everyone, to the Bitchin' Biz with Xander Berkeley. Go go look at that IMDB. Or Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> See you. if you can uh, figure out what we were talking about. Make a little game out of it. <laughs> Maybe right. a drinking game. Just don't mention it to me. <laughs> okay, Xander. Great to see you guys. Lots of love. Talk soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Ah, uh, my sweet CG. Well, we got through that last one. Uh, Really interesting experiment to be able to talk about art and acting and why we do this without actually naming the shows that we're that we're in. Very interesting, informative conversation with Xander. Um, I was a little bit uh, policing both of them, slipping the titles <laughs> of some things. But uh, no, overall, it was a great conversation. I enjoyed it for sure. Yeah. So uh, to hear more of our conversation with Xander, please head over to our Patreon by bitches. It is the support over there that keeps us coming back here. And well, I think that's it. Well, no, what am I talking about? You can follow me at the Melinda Clark on Instagram and TikTok. And CG, what is your handle, honey? I am CGMIR on Instagram and TikTok. And I forgot to ask Xander, but I know Xander. He's at Xander Original on Instagram. And also follow the Bye Bitches podcast on Instagram to keep up with all of our new episodes. And we'll give some updates as to what's happening with the strike. Um, and just to stay up on everything. Bye, bitches. Thank you all again for your support. And we'll see ya. Bye, bitches. Like and follow. Bye. Bye.